0: In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus Tecum. Benedicta tu, mulieribus et Benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Santa Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nobis in hora mortis nostrae. Amen. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Brethren in Christ, laudate Jesus Christus in secula. Happy Ember Friday. This is the Advent Ember Tide the second day of the great O Antiphons. We are getting closer to the most holy feast of the nativity of our Lord, according to the flesh, Christmas. So it's a very exciting time. We're going to continue our series on the Holy Bible based on my book, Introduction to the Holy Bible for traditional Catholics. If you like this book, you can get it for free as a patron. If you become a patron, you get uh, patron only shows, you get books. So thanks for all the patrons. Appreciate your support. And you can also purchase the book separately, electronic or print copy. So we're continuing the series on the Holy Bible, and we've been doing a cultural analysis, and we're getting to the formation of the League of Christendom. And the League of Christendom is the formation, the understanding between the parties of the elders in order to overcome the machinations of the conspiracy of Antichrist. So we've talked about the conspiracy of Antichrist and how it unites these archetypal figures, heretic, Jew and pagan. And what we're going to see in the book of Acts is the formation of the league of Christendom. Here's what's going to happen here is that we will go uh, the the archetype heretic Jew pagan, the heretic accepts a, a heretical Christ, the Jew explicitly rejects Christ, and then the pagan is indifferent to Christ. And both of these All three of these archetypal figures unite in the conspiracy of Antichrist in order to impose their will on the king, the coin, and the kitchen, which is all of society. That's the government, economy, and family. Meanwhile, the strict and the moderate, we're going to introduce them today, are uniting in order to baptize the king the coin in the kitchen. And what we're seeing in the book of Acts is the gradual development of a people according to the revelation of Logos Incarnate. And what we're going to see today is very interesting in the way that the, the tabernacle of David is resurrected. The tabernacle of David is resurrected, which is prophesied in Amos, which we're going to see in Acts 15 when the league is formalized. And the... The resurrection of the tabernacle of David is the expansion of the Gentiles. Now, we talked last time about this prophecy, which is incidentally in the epistle of Ember Wednesday. And the prophecy from Isaiah goes like this. Chapter 2, verse 2, it says, All nations shall flow into it, the mountain of the Lord. And it says, For the law shall come forth from Zion... And the logos of the Lord from Jerusalem, so it's prophesying that all nations will come to the mountain of the Lord. It will establish the mountain of the Lord, and there will be a new law. It will not be the law of Sinai, which is the Mosaic law. It will be the law of Zion, the the law of the new mountain that is established. So it's establishing a new mountain, and then it's the, the the logos of the Lord is coming from Jerusalem. So using the Septuagint, which we're going to talk about that eventually. We'll get into all these controversies about the oral, oral tradition. Uh, eventually, we we'll talk about the Septuagint. Um, but what we have here is a conversion of the nations based on a new law from Jerusalem, from a new mountain, and from the logos of Jerusalem. Now, we get two other—I mean, there's so many other— pictures of this conversion in the Old Testament. But I want to highlight two in particular, which is going to illuminate what we're going to go through with Acts chapter 10 and 11. The first one is Ezekiel 36, 23, which says this, "'I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the Gentiles, which you have profaned in the midst of them, that the Gentiles may know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord of hosts, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes.' For I will take you from among the Gentiles. Verse 25, I will pour upon you clean water and you will be cleansed from all your filthiness and I will cleanse you from all your idols. So here is the, the type of baptism. Here's the prophecy of baptism. And here's the, prop, the prophecy of confirmation. Verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. And I will take away your stony heart and out of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. So this is prophecy of the means by which all the Gentiles are going to be coming in. The means by which, which is this washing of clean water and this work of the spirit. And what we're going to see today in Acts is that very thing. Now, the other key one I wanted to point out was Daniel chapter 4, verse 31. Now, this is... The pattern in the book of Daniel, the first four chapters, which is where a pagan, there's the temple's destroyed, they're sent to Babylon, and there is a pagan who is converted, who's the king of the, the first beast. The first beast is, uh, or one of the beasts is, is Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. And this is a, this is a really a prophecy of the conversion of the Roman Empire, which we're going to see, we're going to get into that with Revelation. And what happens is it's an action of Logos. Logos sends a vision to Nebuchadnezzar and then he can't interpret it and there's multiple visions and it's in a dream and he goes to Daniel and Daniel interprets the vision. So he's giving Logos, he's giving an interpretation, a rational explanation for a supernatural event. And what we see here is this method of conversion is not through bloodshed. It's not through voluntarism, which is, imposing the will of the stronger upon the weaker which is the method of empire both among the jews and among the romans because the jews at this time are trying to impose their will on judea through violence but rather it is a cooperation of the supernatural logos through a vision and the natural logos through your reason so it's a combination of faith and reason cooperating In a community of persons, because we have Daniel interpreting, using logos, interpreting the vision. So we have a a Gentile, a pagan, is converted by receiving a supernatural vision, and then he uses his reason to understand the logos given to him by the Judahite Daniel. Now, I'm using the term Judahite for a specific reason, which we'll talk about in just a minute. So we have this this same pattern happens... With Saul as well, we already saw that. Saul receives a vision, and then he's directed to go to another person, and then they're sharing logos. He's explaining to him a rational explanation. So it's, a, it's union of faith and reason, the union of natural and supernatural logos. There is no conflict between them. They're working together in a community of persons because what you notice through the whole book of Acts is that the apostles are never giving a written document to establish the church. They are giving the logos of the Lord, the logos of God. They are preaching the logos. It is an oral doctrine that is establishing the church, an oral doctrine through the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to see. Now, what's really interesting with Nebuchadnezzar is that when he converts, chapter 4, verse 31, he says this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, and this is when he received a vision which was going to humble him, and this is also going to prophesy the, the death of Herod in just, just uh, next time we go, go through Acts chapter 12 and 13. So Nebuchadnezzar is humbled and he receives a vision. He's humbled. And then he says this, verse 31, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my sense was restored to me. It's a, an operation of logos. And I blessed the most high God. And I praised and glorified him that liveth forever and ever. Now notice what he says about the kingdom. He says, for his power, God's power, is an everlasting power, and his kingdom is to all generations. So there is a revelation of the kingdom to Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, revealing the the essence of the kingdom. And what happens with the kingdom, verse 33, Nebuchadnezzar says, I was restored to my kingdom and greater majesty was added to me. So we're already seeing the prophecy of the manner, the nature of this kingdom that's going to happen. Is it going to convert? It's going to baptize the kingdom. of The Christian culture is going to become the culture of every people that is converted. And then, but it is a spiritual kingdom, which transcends the earthly realm, but it also is incarnate. So it does convert and baptize the actual earthly realm. So, that is the prophecy that's already happening in the book of Daniel to describe what the nature of this kingdom. And, and the tribes of Israel, that were the last remaining tribes of Israel, did not understand this. And this is the reason for the creation of the first heresy, which we're going to see the first inkling of in just a minute. So let's go through this passage, Acts 10, 11. Now we already talked last time about Caesarea, Cornelius, he's a centurion. What are those what are the significance of those? Because St. Peter, the rock, who's already been commissioned to be the rock, to topple the cult of Augustus, Caesar Augustus, and Caesarea Philippi, when he was established as the rock, now he's going to the next center of Caesar. He's going to Caesarea. Now, verse 2 says, a devout, Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his household. So now we have the conversion of the coin, which which we've already seen with the economy. Now we're going to see the whole kitchen, the whole family is being converted with Cornelius. So what happens is Cornelius receives a vision and the Lord says to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. So then he sends some of his servants and a devout soldier from among them back to the apostles. And this is, again, prophesying This is an archetype, a type of what's happening, what's going to happen with the Roman Empire, with the conversion. He's sending a soldier to go to St. Peter. Now, St. Peter also receives a vision. He says this, verse 10. He was, St. Peter was, he fell into a trance and saw the heaven open and something descending like a great sheet let down for four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, the, 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 uh, the animals here are not what's called kashrut. Kashrut means kosher. It means the animals that were the uh, clean animals with which to, uh, that Israel was allowed to eat according to the Mosaic law. So he's receiving a vision and the vision is telling him to violate the Mosaic law. So St. Peter says, no, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So he's saying, I will follow the Mosaic law. Now, this is exactly what the Maccabees did in the book of Maccabees. They refused to eat pork, which is counted unto them unto justice. This is exactly what he should be doing, except he's receiving a vision. And the voice came down, came to him again a second time. It said, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. And this is when God is revealing to him the nature of the resurrection of the tabernacle of David. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. So verse 17, now what's happening? Again, contrasting this with the Mohammedans, when Mohammed receives a quote unquote vision from Gabriel, who chokes him to death and forces him to recite the Quran, that is voluntarism. That's an imposition of the the power over the weak. But here there's a vision in which God speaks logos to him. It speaks a rational message to him. And then verse 17, it says, while Peter was inwardly perplexed at what the vision would mean, he was pondering over the vision. This is when the, the, the soldier and the other companions of Cornelius, the servants of Cornelius come to him. So he's trying to rationalize it and understand it. He's using his logos and he is then told by the Holy Spirit to follow them and go to Cornelius's house. So again, an action of logos, but an action of the Holy Spirit. We have the supernatural and the natural logos working together. So verse 24, the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his kinsmen and close friends. We have his whole family, his extended family are together. So then, Peter enters the house of Cornelius because of this vision that he's received. So he's receiving the vision. They're, they're both working and cooperating with logos through the Holy spirit. And they have come to hear the logos. Once again, he's not asking for a written document from St. Peter. He says, I sent you to you at once. Now, therefore we are all here present in the sight of God and hear all that you have been, you have been commanded by the Lord. So we're, we're here to hear a message that's oral, and oral tradition. So here's St. Peter's sermon. He says this, truly, I perceive that God shows no partiality. So he's making a lo- a conclusion based on logos. And he says this, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know, the word, which is sent to the sons of Israel, preaching good news, of peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. So this is a, this is a declaration against Caesar, against his own, his own, uh, emperor who, whom he is serving. And, uh, Cornelius, he's saying he is the Lord of all, not Caesar. The word that was proclaimed throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, from the baptism with John preached how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He's the one who has power. Caesar does not have power Jesus Christ is the true king. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Once again, the liberation of Jesus Christ is the liberation from the power of the devil. Caesar is the one who rules by the power of the devil, which we'll see explicitly in the the book of Revelation, when the dragon gives gives his power to the beast. So, but God raised him on the third day and made him manifest. And now to all the people... Not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses, the word martyres, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people, to testify that he is the one ordained by God to judge the living and the dead. And here's, here's where Ezekiel comes in about the cleansing. He's already been told by God that the Gentiles are being cleansed. And he says this, to all the prophets: To him all the prophets bear witness, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, here's where God acts, according to Logos, according to the supernatural and natural Logos. And here's where we have the first truly papal decree, which adjudicates the existing Mosaic law. Okay, so here's a papal decree, which adjudicates the Mosaic law. Verse 44. While while Peter was still saying this, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the Logos. And the believers from among the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, Can anyone forbid water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So, we have the first Pope adjudicating the law of Moses for a full-blooded Gentile who's not any sort of proselyte or half-blooded Judahite like the Samaritans were or the Ethiopians were. We've already seen that. He's making a, a logical conclusion based on his, his authority as the Pope, and he's commanding them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This is a momentous moment of... The supernatural logos and the natural logos working through the authority of the church, through the Pope, to adjudicate the canonical norm, the the canon law, essentially. And we're going to talk about how this all breaks down with the Mosaic law and the legal structure therein as the new temple is constructed. Because Ezekiel's, Ezekiel's climax of the Ezekiel prophecy is... The rebuilding of a new temple and this temple is larger than even the second temple that was then in existence so now we have the introduction of the first heretics or it's really a premonition of the first heretics chapter 11 verse 1 now the Apostles and the brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the logos of God so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? So this is the, the formation of what we will call the strict party. There are two parties of elders. Now, this one says the, the circumcision party. Now, we're going to talk about essentially the, the strict party is the party of elders who seeks to keep everything in existence in the tradition unchanged as much as possible. No change whatsoever. And the moderate party seeks to change something that is non-essential. Now, there is a third party of elders who are the heretics. Now, the heretics come out of either party, which basically just goes too extreme on one side, and they refuse to unite with their brethren. And this is what we're seeing, the the, the premonitions of this starting in this verse, which is where we have this party of the circumcision. So obviously these are Judahites or Benjaminites who are circumcised. They are known as Jews. And, but here, what we're seeing here is that the Mosaic law and the prophets are being adjudicated by the church authority, which will then be confirmed by an ecumenical council in Acts chapter 15, or sort of the archetype of the ecumenical council. And we're seeing that the Mosaic law, the legal covenant with God, is being adjudicated by church authority and the establishment the resurrection of the tabernacle of david is being completed by means of the holy spirit by means of god not by means of blood the judahites benjaminites and the levites were defined by their blood relationship the circumcision circumcision is a covenant to not intermarry with a gentile is what it is it's a covenant with god to not intermarry with the gentiles in other words the covenant is based on blood and we already saw the in the first chapter of saint john's gospel it says who are born not of blood nor of man but of god and so the the resurrection of the tabernacle of david is resurrecting the true nature of the people of god according to his power, not according to blood. Now, what happens is St. Peter explains to the party of the circumcision using logos. Once again, he explains to them the nature of this working of God. And he mentions once again, that Cornelius is, is baptized with all of his household. So this is, this is a, an action of conquering the family. So we've already seen the coin, and we're seeing the family. We've already seen premonitions of the king being converted, the government, the whole society. Now, he gives this reasoning, this logos, to the circumcision party, and what they say is verse 17. It says, if, if then God—well, St. Peter says to that party, he says, if, God, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard this, they were silenced, and they glorified God, saying, "Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance unto life." So this this sort of strict party does not become fully heretical at this point because they receive the logos from Saint Peter from church authority, and they don't fall into the sin of envy. They don't fall into the sin of uh, being envious of the good that God is doing to the Gentiles, even though they're heathen. He's doing these good things to the Gentiles. They respond with brotherly love, with, with charity. They, they say God has, they rejoice. God has given repentance to the Gentiles. So this is the first premonition of a conflict because it says that they contended with St. Peter and he gives the logos to give them an, a reason for that. Now, what we see right after this is that the resurrection of the tabernacle of David really begins, really gets going now. So verses 19 through 26 talks about how the Roman cities are now being converted among the Gentiles, especially in Antioch in another large city on that coastal region. They're converting Greeks. So they're now continuing to convert the pagans. They are resurrecting the tabernacle of David. Now, in verse 26, it says, now this is where St. Paul comes back into the picture, because remember, he was sort of sent away. He, came, he comes back, and now it says, in Antioch, the disciples were first, for the first time, called Christians. So now the definition of the identity of the people of God is identified with the, with the Christ, and the term means anointed king. So becoming a Christian is becoming a member of the kingdom. It's having a citizenship with the anointed king who is anointed by the Holy Spirit, who is born of God, not of man, not of blood. So the term Jew is abandoned because the term Jew refers to blood. It refers to the tribe of Judah. So the term Jew is no longer going to be used by Christians to define themselves and They are going to be defined by God's work. So, last thing I'll say, I I see we have, I got one question. If you guys have any questions, please throw it in the chat or any comments. Now, what's really interesting is, in verse 28, we see beginning the action of God to punish the conspiracy of Antichrist. And we're going to see this explicitly in the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is going to talk about these two beasts and God punishing, God removing the seals from the, what was sealed in the, in the prophecy of Daniel. The Lamb of God is going, to re, re, is going to remove the seals, and the wrath of God is going to be poured out on the, on the earth that they may, be, may repent. And this is, going, this is already unfolding in the book of Acts, because it's leading up to the destruction of the temple. In verse twenty eight it says, one of the prophets, the these meaning the Christian prophets, named named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the earth, and this took place in the in the days of Claudius, the Emperor. And the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brethren who lived in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So once again, we have the action of the coin, which is where they're they're using their, their resources to share with those in need. But we have this famine, and famine is a punishment from God. This is something that will be explicitly mentioned in the book of Revelation as a punishment. It will be a famine. And so there's this great famine in the days of Claudius. And Claudius is going to... Let me just review my roman emperors i believe it's claudius um yes claudius is the predecessor to nero and nero caesar is the the 666 he's the number of he's the the name of the beast is 666 caesar nero and we're going to talk all about that in eventually so claudius is the predecessor to uh the emperor nero now this is his his predecessor was caligula who was murdered And Claudius will also be murdered. And so we see God starting to punish the Roman Empire and punishing the conspiracy for their work in crucifying Jesus Christ. And we'll also see the destruction of the Gentiles as a punishment and the construction of the new temple as prophesied by Ezekiel and Revelation. So that's what we have in store. This will be the continuation of the formation of the Christian culture. Now, uh, Patrick asks a question, to which camp would you count Gamaliel, um, now Gamaliel, uh, let's see, Gamaliel is in chapter, what is that? Um, Gamaliel, so Gamaliel is in chapter five, verse 33, St. Paul says that he was his teacher. Now, the issue is that the Christians and the Jews both claim Gamaliel, Gamaliel is claimed by the Pharisaic Jews as a, a rabbi, and there is an Eastern tradition which states that Gamaliel converted to the faith as well. So there is some dispute as to what really happened with Gamaliel. Um, we can certainly piously believe that he did become a saint, and so in but in terms of the parties, you know, he would def, he would certainly be of the moderate party because he did not want to be strict with the apostles. So I think that would that would fit. Um, Vox Populi says, "Why did God allow the prot deformation to so far permanently tear Christianity apart?" Well, um, God God sends these things to punish our sins. And this I think that in my opinion, I think a a very clear prophecy is given at the at the letter in Council 1517 which is where a pious layman, and I, I never remember his name because it's a very long Italian name, um, but he gets up at the Council of in five and he says that if we don't correct these abuses, God will punish us and he'll tear the church apart. So he actually prophesies in the spring of 1517 that these c- abuses need to be corrected. And then what happens in the fall of 1517 is that Luther nails his theses. Now, the thing about the Protestant Luther's revolt is that, by God's grace, he also punished Rome. He had, Rome was sacked as a punishment, and Rome repented. This was actually a turning point in the Reformation period, the so-called Reformation, was the sack of Rome, which punished Rome and actually brought the papacy and the curia to their senses, which then brought about the reform of Trent. Now, after Trent and the Jesuits and all these saints arising, most of the really, there was only a few places that were were still advancing by 1600 the Protestant advance had been, had been stopped the many people will be converted back to the faith uh, the Jesuits were converting souls across the world so there was a really a very large turning point after the Protestants began and really England was the big epicenter of Protestantism right there but what happens is, the Protestants fight back in the Thirty Years' War, and there's a corrupt Pope which who sins and turns back and joins with the conspiracy. He's Urban the Eighth, and we're gonna talk about this in our Spain series. So he 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 betrays the faith, the Pope Pope Urban the Eighth betrays the faith with a corrupt cardinal in France who side with the Protestants. And this is really the big turning point. It's really not even the Protestant revolt in 1517. The big turning point is, is really 1648, which is where the Protestant revolt is then given full bore at that point because the the Pope and the, the other Catholic power of France betray the cause of the League of, of Christendom. Um, the League of Christendom is about uniting against the enemies of Holy Church. It's about uniting against the conspiracy. And what happens at that moment is that there's a reversal. And so that's really what truly has caused sort of the modern dominance of Protestantism now. is It really comes back to this betrayal in the 17th century. So that's something that I'll be covering in my book. Um, and But that's, that's kind of, I mean, when we sin, God punishes us. That's That's kind of the... Um, that is the the bottom line, basically. So that is all we have for today. Uh, so let's offer up a prayer uh, once again for the conversion of the heathen, conversion for neo pagans, especially for the festival of Christmas, which many non believers still celebrate in some fractured way, that they may come to know Jesus Christ and have eternal life. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Pater nostr, qui es in Caelis, sanctificetur nomen tuum. Adveniat regnum tuum. fia voluntas tua, sicut in et in terra. Panem nostrum quotidianum da nobis hodie, nobis debita nostra, sicut et nos dimitimus debitoribus nostris. Et ne in tentationem, sed libera nos a malo. Amen. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen.